All right, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. As we work our way through John's Gospel, and uh, today uh, is, um, is part two of a message I wanted to finish last week, but then the Lord laid on my heart to do a special message um, on combating the spirit of fear. So you can go online and listen to that if you weren't here. But uh, as we have been saying, uh, so this morning I want to finish that message, a message I'm entitling The Coming Apostasy, a title I've taken from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, which we'll look at in a moment. But as we've been saying for the past few weeks, uh, Jesus, in chapters 13 through 16, is giving his farewell address to his disciples before his crucifixion. We're less than 12 hours from the cross by this point in John's Gospel. Now, their hearts were very troubled primarily because he had told them earlier in the evening that he was going away and they couldn't go with him, that he would come back for them, but right now they couldn't follow him. And so they were devastated. And so he knew that, and so he spends the most of the 14th chapter comforting and, and reassuring them by giving them many promises designed to encourage their hearts for the difficult days that you know lay ahead uh, once he returned back to his Father in heaven. But then he begins to promise them, them some things that were not such a blessing to hear. And so I want to look at verses 1 and 2 of John 16, where he said, These things I have spoken to you. Now that takes us back to a section we already studied in chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, how that if the world hated him, they were going to hate his disciples also. That's what he's referring to when he says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Wow. We kind of camped on that little statement, which we started looking at a couple weeks ago. And when we did, we said that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is prophesying here. He's telling his disciples that, how they can expect to be treated by uh, the people of this world, how they can expect to be treated as his followers by the people of this world once they go into all the world preaching the gospel. Now, last time we said the thing about Bible prophecy that's important to understand is that many times there is a short-term partial fulfillment, but then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And we looked at the short-term fulfillment, actually there's like three examples of this connected to this one prophecy. But we looked at this a couple weeks ago where we said that, you know, the, the very short-term fulfillment was uh, when the Jewish leadership uh, came after the Christian church, after the, Jesus ascended back to his father after his resurrection, and um, they went back to Jerusalem where they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, which was poured out. He was poured out in the day of Pentecost. The church was born, and the church hit the ground running and began to go everywhere, preaching the gospel everywhere in Jerusalem, I should say. And, of course, the Jewish leadership, those that were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court or High Council, all right, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on, they hated Christ, and they hated the followers of Jesus Christ, so much so that they determined that these traitors to Judaism, remember now, most of those first Christians were Jewish. And the Jewish leadership considered them traitors to Judaism and were determined to hunt them down, no matter what, hunt them down and eliminate all of those Jews who belonged to this cult called Christianity, believing that to do so they were actually serving God. Think of Saul of Tarsus, who started out persecuting but then got saved. Okay, we talked about that. But as we said last time, the prophecy of Jesus also had another short-term fulfillment in mind when he said that there's coming a time when those who persecute you will think they're serving God, right? And uh, we looked at all this last time. I'm just quickly reviewing. But um, when Jesus said that, he was talking about how that the Jewish people, and of course uh, all believers in him, Jew and Gentile, would eventually be persecuted by the followers of, of a brand new religion that was coming. We know it as Islam. And those who belong to it as Muslims. Again, we talked about this last time. 
how Muslims believe that by killing Jews and even Christians, they're doing God a service, Allah. But eventually, and I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so if you don't know that, I, now you do, but eventually um, another church rose up to persecute the Jewish people, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and again, you can go online and listen to this from last week because we talked about this, all right? But I further believe that Jesus' prophecy also had a long-term ultimate fulfillment in mind when he said it. I believe he was ultimately speaking of another time, you know, a, a time long after the 1st, the 7th, or even the 11th centuries A.D., when the Jews and Gentiles, all believers in Christ, would be hunted down and killed by those who believed they were serving God. Now, what time in the history of the world do I have in mind? What does the Bible say? And who is this God, by the way, that people who kill uh, Jews and, and Christians or uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians, what God are they serving when they do this? Well, very simply, the Bible calls the time uh, in the history of the world that this is going to happen the Great Tribulation Period, which is technically the second half of the 70th week of Daniel. Um, we call the whole thing the Tribulation Period. First part, beginning of sorrows. Second part, last three and a half years. Uh, like Jesus likened to a woman in hard labor. Uh, he called it Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. This is, this is a time when the Antichrist goes berserk and he's the god he is the god that his followers uh when they follow his edict to kill jews especially but also all christians uh that his followers believe in doing so they're they're honoring and serving god he's the god they think they're honoring and serving turn to second thessalonians 2 of course we call this leader the antichrist who will come on the scene we think shortly and rise to power as the leader of a one-world government. But he's not going to just be a political leader. At one point, he is going to be declare himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3, where Paul said, Look, let no one deceive you, talking to the church there in Thessalonica, Christians. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. That's the Greek word is apostasy. That's why I call it the coming apostasy. Uh, we get the word apostasy from that Greek word. It means a falling away, a departing from the faith, right? So that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's a way of describing the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. We've been talking about this a lot on our Wednesday night Revelation study, okay? Skip down to verse 9. Paul goes on to say, The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Everyone who rejects the gospel the true gospel during this period of time, they will open themselves up to the deception of the Antichrist, ultimately Satan. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Guys, the Antichrist, when he comes to power, will be hailed by the world as their Messiah. They're going to think he is the Messiah. But he will be a false Messiah. The devil, though, will empower him with miraculous intelligence, charisma, and supernatural power. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that Satan will give him the power to actually work miracles. These are legitimate miracles, the Greek words for miracles there, same of the miracles Jesus did. Only these will be miracles that will be designed to point people in the opposite direction of the truth, get them to follow the Antichrist and ultimately the devil. All right? But the Antichrist, when he comes, and I'm just setting this up for today's message, okay? The Antichrist, when he comes, and i got to apologize to the new folks, okay? Uh, I was telling first service, if you're new, you're not used to this church. I, I, at one point, as I get into this teaching, you're going to think, what have I gotten involved in here? 
And this is kind of, it shouldn't be unorthodox. It's, it's biblical. But you just aren't hearing a lot of this stuff today because too many pastors are trying to keep it light and positive and so on, and we don't feel that way. We, you know, we're, we're a mutual offending church. We'll f- offend anybody <laughs> if it's the truth. But in love, we're not going to get in your face and try to offend you, but we just want to bring the truth out there. Um, but, but bear with me. This, this message is going to seem, whoa. But it's, uh, uh, it's in the context, and we always teach verse by verse. We launch into a little topical. It's always in the greater context. And the context is there's coming a time when those who kill God's people will think they're serving the true God. They won't be, but they're going to think that. Well, what's going to precipitate all that? Well, hang on. We're getting there, okay? But the devil is going to infuse this guy with supernatural charisma, intelligence, and power. And he's going to come, guys, preaching, listen, a gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. Now, it depends what you're talking about and who you're talking to as whether or not people are going to think it's good news. If it's lies, but people are embracing lies and think those lies are good news, okay, to them it's a gospel. It's not our gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But it will be a false gospel. A gospel, quote-unquote, that will contain nothing more than doctrines of demons. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because Paul the Apostle warned us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, expressly tells us that in the last days, all right, in the last the time that we're in right now, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and embracing doctrines of demons. Guys, doctrine simply means teaching. Doctrines of, doctrines of demons means teachings of demons. These doctrines of demons have been around from the beginning of time. In fact, they got started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Satan, in the form of a serpent, introduced this lie into the human race. Like a serpent's bite, he injected this doctrinal venom into the bloodstream of humanity. A lie that before it's all over, and I'm not overstating this, will have caused the spiritual death of billions upon billions of people throughout the history of the world. This lie is sprinkled throughout the Bible, but it's talked about specifically by Paul, the apostle in Romans 125, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. Paul called it the lie. Some of your translations may say a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2.11, which we just looked at. I checked the Greek. The definite article is definitely there. It is the lie. The lie. Not a lie as in one of many, but the lie. A very specific and very deadly lie. Look, the world is full of lies. That's true. But there is one lie that is the mother of all spiritual lies, which the father of lies so into the human race. He was called the father of lies by Jesus Christ in John 8, 44, the devil. And the devil introduced this particular lie, the mother of all spiritual lies, into the human race in the Garden of Eden. To change the metaphors, it was like planting a small sapling tree in the garden. The Garden of Eden was supposed to be, the, it's called the Garden of God. It was where God's truth was introduced to humanity, Initially, two people, right? But the devil came in and he planted a little sapling, a tree that would grow, a tree that would be filled with deceptive fruit, poisonous fruit. And this tree was planted in the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to get to in a second. And it's been growing and growing and spreading its branches for 6,000 years. And today, its branches cover the entire earth and the fruit that it is bearing has now reached full ripeness and is going to be partaken enthusiastically by the people of this world when the Antichrist comes. They think it's going to be, well, fruit that brings life. It's really doctrine that brings death. We know it, all right? But um, again, 1 Timothy 4.1, 
the Holy Spirit expressly tells us. Why, why did the Spirit tell us this? Because He wants to warn us that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. He's talking about people who go to church. They're going to embrace this lie. We'll talk about that more at the end of the message. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to, de to, deceiving, to uh, deceiving spirits and embracing doctrines of demons. Folks, I believe you know this. But I'm wondering how, how, I'm wondering how many Christians, people who call themselves Christians, go to church, understand that demons have doctrines. God's word is telling us that demons are teachers. They're teachers. These doctrines are what occultists and New Agers have called for a long time the cosmic gospel. We were talking on Wednesday how that the enemy uses our terms. He hijacks our um, vocabulary because it gives his lies credibility. Oh, I heard that in the Bible. And so people kind of associate his lies with the truth. People in the New Age have called the doctrine I'm about to present to you, which Paul calls the lie, they have called it the, the cosmic gospel for years. More recently, the new gospel. The new gospel. It's not a new gospel, it's an old lie. But people don't realize that. It's the same message people have heard from extraterrestrials and what is called close encounters of the third kind, where people actually make contact with what they believe is an alien from another planet. We believe, I think most of us, that is nothing more than demons masquerading as aliens. And the sightings are becoming more frequent, right? What's going on? Just a little side thought. The devil is preparing the world for the ultimate deception which is about to be unveiled. And I believe somehow these UFOs and alien sightings play a part in that. We'll talk about that more some other time. But do you know people that have actually made contact with extraterrestrials? These beings preach to them. They've talked about the coming kingdom. They quote Bible verses. Isn't that interesting? They quote Bible verses. And they preach a message. But it's not just them. It's the same message people have heard from extraterrestrials in seances while on LSD trips, which the Bible calls pharmakia and forbids because you're coming in contact with the spirit realm, opening yourself up to uh, deception. The Bible calls it pharmakia, but also sorcery. They've heard the same messages in deep yoga trances while practicing transcendental meditation out of Ouija boards and through mediums who are in contact with the spirit realm. You'll find the same basic message in many of the cults and in the occult alike. It's a message that is flooding into our world from a dozen different directions, all at the same time, no doubt preparing the world for the coming of the Antichrist, because he's going to come preaching this gospel. I think it's, it's the very thing we're about to talk about. I think this is his gospel. The devil's got a gospel. He's got a Messiah. It's not our Messiah. It's not our gospel. But the world is going to think it's their Messiah and gospel. And so the enemy is flooding the zone, we might say, with the same lie from all these different groups. They're not even connected to each other. They don't even know about one another oftentimes. But the devil is infusing this lie into all these groups, and it's flooding into our world from dozens of different directions all at the same time, proclaiming the same thing over and over again with amazing consistency. This cosmic gospel, which is not new, by the way, obviously, is made up of four tenets or doctrinal pillars that together make up the lie, the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Guys, I believe that the very lie that caused the human race to fall in the beginning is going to be the ultimate lie, the ultimate spiritual deception that Satan is going to use against the human race in the end. You see, I believe that this very lie that Satan introduced into the human race in the Garden of Eden is the lie the Antichrist will use to deceive the world when he 
finally comes on the scene. Turn to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and look at the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I'm just going to read the first five verses. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent, of course, Satan took the form of a serpent. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to, to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This lie that Satan told Eve was made up of four different false doctors. Now please, listen carefully. Some of these are more easy to identify than others. The first one, you're gonna, after I present it to you, you're going to look at me going, you sure you're not reading a lot into this one? Understand, though, that we're looking at the lie as it was planted in the human race in its embryonic state. It's had time over 6,000 years to grow and flourish, and now we understand the lie in its multiple parts. And looking back, now we can say, okay, here's where this element of the lie started. Now, bear with me. The first tenet of this ultimate lie is that God is not personal, but an impersonal force that fills the universe and everything and everyone in it. Guys, when Satan came to Eve, one of the things he subtly, subtly planted into her mind was the concept that the person that she had come to know as God, you know, was not God because of who he is. Who is he? He is the personal, omnipotent, omnipotent, eternal God. He is a person, right? But Satan subtly planted in Eve's mind that God was not God because of who he is, but only became God, listen, because of some secret information. Again, I think it's what is going to be preached very shortly to the world as the new gospel. That this being she had come to know as God was not always God. He became God because of some secret information he became aware of. In other words, he was God because of what he knew. Verse 5, you will be like God, what? Knowing. You will be like God, Eve, knowing. God is who he is because of something he discovered a truth, something he came to understand and applied to himself. And at that point, he became God. And guess what? Satan is telling Eve, who I can imagine has kind of come alongside of her if he had arms. He'd be kind of hugging her, you know, saying, Eve, I want you to understand this God that you think is so great. He is really a selfish God. He found out how to become divine. And now he wants to keep you and your husband and your whole family that's coming from this knowledge. He doesn't want you to become God like he's reached divinity. Oh, no. He wants to keep that all to himself. And I'm here to kind of help you. Isn't it interesting how Satan, and maybe he doesn't get away with it with us anymore, we're saved. But how the devil comes alongside people and makes God look to be the villain, and the devil really looks like he's their friend. God only wants to keep you from having fun. Follow me. I want you to have the most fun in life you can have. Party, you know, and drug, drugs and sex and everything else. Don't let these narrow-minded, bigoted Christians get a hold of your thinking, that kind of thing, right? How the devil makes himself look like our friend, and God looks like the villain. That's what the devil is, use, is trying to do here. He is, quote-unquote, helping Eve <laughs> to see through God's selfishness and trying trying to keep her and the whole human race from reaching godhood. So guys, here you have the first part of the lie, that God is not personal, 
but an impersonal force that fills the universe and flows through everything and everyone, a God force that anyone can tap into if they only know how to. Now, I'm going to quote Star Wars a few times. If you've never seen the Star Wars, you only have to watch the first two to understand what I'm talking about. Check it out, okay? Wasn't that the, the main message that was being preached through the Star Wars movies? May the force be what? Be with you. Do you know George Lucas who wrote those movies? George Lucas, right? He's into this. And he said, now these are not my words, this is what he said, that those movies were his attempt to preach the gospel of the force. He considered himself to be the Billy Graham of the force. He really believes this stuff. And through those movies, he was trying to get the whole world to buy into this, embrace what we call, or the Bible calls, the lie, but guys like Lucas think is the most incredible truth the world has ever seen, but doesn't understand. Of course, a force. God's not a personal being. He's a force. Of course, a force, like electricity, is impersonal and amoral. Amoral. And therefore, isn't going to hassle you with morals, right? Morality? I mean, if God is a force, then that means we can use this force. We use electricity. We don't bow down to electricity. Well, electricity doesn't have any moral standards that we have to abide by to use electricity, right? So if God's just like electricity, a force, we can learn how to tap into this force called God, use it for our benefit, but not have to be subject to any morality because it's not a person. It's a force, right? Not going to hassle me with any standard of right and wrong. Now, those who believe this doctrine don't believe in moral absolutes. Because the God force is in you. So you need only look within yourself to find, listen, your truth. Your truth. And what is right or wrong for you. You've heard people that embrace this, right? Don't hassle you, quote the Bible. Thou shalt not commit adultery, blah, you know, those things. Don't hassle me with your truth. I have my truth. See, they get it from this, that God is within all of us, and I, I need only to look within to find my truth. In other words, what I think I right and wrong for me. The second element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that there is no ultimate death. He said, remember he said to her, Eve, you will not, surely die he didn't say she wasn't going to die but she wasn't going to surely die what does that mean hang on what he was telling her was eve there is no ultimate death this of course became the basis for the doctrine of reincarnation reincarnation is the process of spiritual evolution whereby our spirit keeps being re reincarnated recycled upon the earth in a new body in the hope that every time we come around again right this body dies then and my spirit is is uh, reincarnated into a new body every time we're reincarnated these people teach uh, hopefully we'll live a little more a moral spiritually enlightened life until eventually we will evolve into godhood that's the idea but here if we're all part of the God force, which they believe we are, the God force is eternal. It's eternal. So my body dies, but my spirit never dies. Because it's part of the eternal God force. It just keeps getting recycled into a new body. In other words, there is no ultimate death. No ultimate death. We also saw this being taught in those Star Wars movies. Remember how when Obi-Wan Kenobi was fighting Darth Vader... And Darth Vader struck him down. He didn't stop existing, did he? He continued to communicate to Luke Skywalker as a disembodied spirit from out on the astral plane. In other words, there is no ultimate death. And guys, that's what Hinduism and the New Age movement believes. Hinduism, excuse me, the New Age is just westernized Hinduism. 
But that's what Hinduism and New Age believes and teaches. That when we die, our spirit simply moves out onto the astral plane where we wait for a new body to be reincarnated into. Of course, the big problem for Christians in this, because the Bible, some people try to tell us that the Bible teaches reincarnation. It does not. I've seen the scriptures they try to pull out to use. No. The Bible teaches not reincarnation. What does it teach? Resurrection. Resurrection. Of course, the main problem with the doctrine of reincarnation is that it does away with the reality of judgment, right? Of hell. And therefore lulls those who are following its teachings into a false hope that if they blow it or if they simply live an overtly wicked life in this life, they'll get another chance to come back and make it right. And so, you know, it's just, all right, so I'm pretty bad right now. I'll come back and do better next time. I mean, what do you think is more appealing to the ears of an unbeliever? You get one chance at this, and then you stand before God in judgment? Or there is no hell, there's no judgment. You just keep getting recycled until you get it right. That's why this doctrine is really gaining a lot of steam. and has been for many years. But as we get closer to the Antichrist coming, it's gaining more and more um, followers, right? Uh, this idea that uh, we all have the opportunity to redeem ourselves by getting another chance at this, very, very appealing. But, of course, the Word of God says very clearly, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto a man, woman, to die once. And after this comes the judgment. But reincarnation says, no, there is no judgment after death. You just keep getting another chance to come back to the earth to do better next time. And so we just talked about that. Now, look. Reincarnation works according to the law of karma. Karma, which is the spiritual law of cause and effect. What do I mean? Whatever a person does in this life, cause, it's going to affect the next life. What do I mean? If you murder somebody in this life, karma says you have to come back in the next life and be murdered. Far from solving the problem of sin, karma just perpetuates it. Jesus solved the problem of sin. His death on the cross, his blood paid for sin. But karma, every sin in one life, demands exactly the same sin in the next life. So, you know, it never solves the problem of sin. But that's how um, reincarnation works, according to the law of karma. Karma, guys, is one of the cruelest jokes the devil ever played in the human race. Why? Because it robs mankind of some of, of, of God's most basic, beautiful an important attribute that God has given to those made in his image. Compassion, mercy, and kindness towards his fellow man. Think about this. Now, in the real world, it doesn't, it's not a hard, fast rule, 100%. But if you're a really committed Hindu who believes in this, right? If you see some beggar by the side of the road, we'll say in India, and this person is starving to death, and you could help them, but you say, I can't. I've got the money, but I won't. Why? Because they're working off their bad karma from the previous life. If I go over there and rescue them from this, you know, pull them out of poverty, give them stuff to eat, maybe give them a job if I'm able to, I just, now they're going to have to live this all over again in the next life because they haven't worked off all that bad karma. I'm doing them a favor by letting them suffer and starve to death because now, the next time they come around, it'll be better for them. Now, I'm sure some Hindus believe, would rationalize it this way, well, I want good karma the next time around, so I am going to help this person. But, but you can understand how that, in, in the mind of somebody committed to this doctrine, to help people, now, to help people in need is only to prolong their misery in the next life. They have to work off that bad karma. Look, I'm going to say this without fear of contradiction. Most of the charities, hospitals, and orphanages that have been established in the world over the centuries by far have been established by Christians. Why? Because Romans 5 verse 5 tells us when we got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in and poured God's love, agape love, into our hearts. 
And God's love is for people. He loves people. And because we belong to Him and His love fills our hearts, we help people. The Christian church mobilizes when there's an earthquake in some part of the world and, and, and thousands are homeless. Or some kind of a, of a pandemic in some part of the world that we rush medical people to. And if we're a doctor or a nurse as a Christian, we run to help. Or, or any natural disaster, right? We don't even know these people. Why should we care? Because we care because God lives in us. And he cares. He is a loving, kind, gracious, giving, generous, and merciful God. And that's the God we reflect. Number three, quickly. The third element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that she could become God. He said, for God knows, Eve. You know, if you eat from that tree, you're not going to die. God knows in the day that you eat of that tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. In other words, Satan told, told Eve she would ascend to Godhood. Look, since we're all part of this God force that flows through everything, you know, people, rocks, trees, animals, etc., then that means that all is God. This is what is known as pantheism. Pan, all, theism, God. Pantheism, all is God. Because the God force flows through everything. So everything is God, really. According to pantheism, everyone and everything is God, which means I'm God. And you're God. Now, isn't that exactly what Shirley MacLaine, you know, remember years ago, how she declared in the movie Dancing in the Light, her movie, she declared in that movie Dancing in the Light, she said, I know that I exist, therefore I am. I think she was on a beach somewhere with her arms extended, you know. She says, I know that I exist, therefore I am. I know that the God source exists, therefore it is. Since I am a part of that force, then I am that I am. The name of God. Right out of Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, right? Look, if I am God, and here's the, uh, the seduction of this kind of belief. If I am God, then I'm free to worship myself. I'm free to live for myself, and I answer to no one but myself. It's having religion and still having a religion based on worshiping myself. Now, guys, I do believe, again, the Antichrist, when he comes on the world scene, is going to present a new religion. Initially, of course, he's God. Uh, and I believe he's going to preach this new gospel. But basically that anyone can become God. I'm here to teach you. I was once a man like you, a person. I learned how to become God. Follow me, worship me, and I will pass this information along to you. Again, read 2 Thessalonians 2. Verses 3 and 4, and then 9 through 11. It connects the lie with the coming of the Antichrist and his religious system. All right, quickly, number four, the fourth element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that Godhood could be achieved, listen, through the tree of knowledge. Knowledge is the key. Or in other words, the path to Godhood is through enlightenment. As Satan's lie to Eve progressed, he told her, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, listen, your eyes will be opened, in other words, you will be enlightened, and you will become like God. In other words, you'll ascend, Eve, to Godhood. Now, those involved in Hinduism and the New Age movement embrace pantheism. And they believe that although man is God, they believe we're all God. Even though they believe man is God, he has forgotten that he's God. How does that work? How can you be God but forget your God? And therefore, since man is a forgetful God, he must come to a higher level of self-awareness or enlightenment to the realization of his own divinity or what they call higher self. This enlightenment, guys, cannot be achieved through a variety of means. You need to be enlightened before you can really reach Godhood. Well, how do you 
achieve enlightenment? Well, there's different techniques and things that uh, they teach you can do. Transcendental meditation is one way. Uh, the use of hallucinogenic drugs like LSD, again, which the Bible calls sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from that Greek word. It's hallucinogenic drugs, which cause you to have an out-of-body experience and open you up to the spirit realm. God forbids that because there's demons out there. You're going to want to try to influence you, right? Um, other means to achieve enlightenment would be through visualization, through yoga, or some other technique. In Eve's case, it was eating the forbidden fruit, right? Um, but all these different techniques are being promoted today by various groups to be used as exercises, spiritual disciplines to gain enlightenment and ultimately to achieve Godhood. It's out there all over the place, all over the place. You see, the only obstacle that these yogis, okay, of the new gospel tell us that stands in the way of us reaching our full potential, our godhood, uh, is really the way you think, the way, the way you perceive reality. The problem is you misperceive reality. You misperceive reality and impose upon it your own limitations. What you need to do is to come to the realization that the aware, come to the, the realization, the awareness that you have infinite potential within you because the God force flows through you. This is even breached uh, away out of the, the spirit teachings realm into the positive mental attitude group. Uh, this, this human potential movement is based on this idea that we have unlimited power with it. We just have to tap into it um, and reach our full potential. They may not call it godhood, secular groups, but you reach your full potential by understanding that you have the power within you to do pretty much anything, right? And they, you must understand, these gurus tell us that you'll never start enjoying your full potential in life until you embrace your divinity and believe that you are God. See, that's why uh, Shirley MacLaine, who is the prophetess, one of them of the New Age movement, takes the first five minutes of every day to remind herself that she's God. Now, what kind of God are you that you have to keep reminding yourself that you're God? Now, she doesn't have a problem with that concept, but she does it every day. Um, and once you realize they teach that you are God with the God force flowing through you and that you have unlimited power and potential within, then you can begin to tap into this power. You can't tap into it if you don't know you have it. You know the God forces inside of you. How can you tap into it and use it? But once you understand this, once you're enlightened, you understand your God, then you can begin to tap into this power to work miracles, overcome weaknesses, heal sicknesses, gain wealth and success. In short, power to create your own reality. Make the world a better place. This is all based on the Hindu belief that the, the universe is nothing more than an illusion created by the mind called the maya. And in Hinduism, they believe that what we perceive as reality is really just an illusion. And if you don't like your current reality, you can change that. What do I mean? Well, if you're poor and you want to be rich, or you're, um, or you're sick and you want to be healthy, you have to just visualize in your mind, and you keep focusing on the vision that you're not in a hospital bed, that you're, you know, standing upright, healthy, next to your Ferrari, parked in the driveway of your mansion because you want to be wealthy too, right? And if you focus on this image long enough and hard enough, you will begin to bring it into reality because it will change what you perceive as reality, as reality. You can change your reality by through the power of your mind is the basic idea. Now, guys, look. Let me just wrap this up. The New Age movement believes, uh, their beliefs are not new at all. Again, they're what's known as westernized version of Hinduism, which has its roots as far back as the Garden of Eden. C.S. Lewis traced, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis, who traced um, all major religions and cults back to two primary sources. Judeo-Christianity, God's truth, and Hinduism, Satan's lie, both of which got started in the Garden of Eden. Both Hinduism and the New Age movement, now called the New Spirituality, 
teach that the only obstacle that stands in the way of you reaching your godhood and your full potential is the way you think. Again, the way you perceive reality. They believe that most people are ignorant to their own divinity. And that's why they're sick and poor. And that's why they fail. Because nobody's ever really enlightened them to the fact that they have the God force within them. In fact, if you don't believe you're a God, they teach that's heinous pride. That's heinous pride. Because we're all connected. We're all part of the same God. For, if you, for you not to believe that, you're a cancer cell in the body of humanity. It's you not only imposing limitations upon yourself, you're imposing it on the rest of us, they believe. What a person needs to do is to start, to start tapping into this infinite power of the God force within them and once you do it again, you can conquer sickness, poverty, bad habits, other failings. But none of that's going to happen until you change the way you think. It's all wrapped up in the way you think. In that regard, you are your own worst enemy because you are fighting against yourself. You're God. You don't know that. You don't believe that. You're going to suffer. It's your own fault. You know, it, it's your fault because of the way you're thinking that you're not achieving success and health and prosperity and so on remember this scene it's one of the Star Wars movies where Yoda was trying to get him to face his fears right Luke and what his, his biggest fear was he was going to have to face Darth Vader in battle at one point okay so you remember that he's on this swamp planet where his starship goes under right and um under the swamp, and he meets this Yoda, okay, this little yogi, is what Yoda was. He was a little yogi, uh, teaching the lessons of the Force, right? But um, at one point, Luke has a vision where he goes into this cave, and there he confronts Darth Vader. Remember, the lightsabers come out, and they start going at it, and Luke takes a swing, cuts Darth Vader's head off, and as the head falls to the ground and rolls, it lands right side up, and Luke looks into the mask to see, what, expecting to see the face of Darth Vader, and whose face does he see? His own. Because he's fighting, he's his own worst enemy. We're all really just fighting ourselves because it's our lack of understanding in all of this, uh, that we don't believe certain things that are holding us back, right? Um, the only thing hindering you and I from achieving complete divinity or godhood um, is by the way you think. It's by the way you think. And this was something that Yoda, and I'll just talk, mention this, we'll close, but again, this was something Luke was placing limitations on himself because of what he believed he could and could not do. He was limiting himself in the way he was thinking. So Yoda was trying, again, a little yogi of the force, was trying to teach Luke um, that he had unlimited power, but it was being held back by his thinking, right? And so Yoda wanted to help Luke to overcome this by getting him to use the power of his mind to levitate his spaceship out of the swamp. Remember that? If you've watched the movie, right? And so what does Luke do? You see him kind of straining and and he's focusing, and then you see the ship starting to come up out of the swamp, and it's vibrating, and it gets a little, just so far, and then he's, he's exhausted. He gives up, and it goes back into the swamp. At which time he says to Yoda, you ask the impossible. Yoda just bends his head like, gosh, this kid. And so Yoda uses the power of his mind and levitates the spaceship out of the swamp, puts it on dry ground. Luke is standing there with his eyes bulging out, mouth open, and when it's safely on dry ground, he looks at Yoda and says, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that's why you failed, because you don't believe. Oh, and by the way, if you ever watched that movie, watch it carefully, because there's a serpent that's going in and out of the frame in the background. Amazing. 
Guys, again, we're done, but this is the lie the devil has sowed into the human race way back in the Garden of Eden. Like tares among the wheat, and it has been growing and branching out over the centuries, and it has become the lie of Hinduism, the lie of the New Age movement. Um, it's the lie, I believe, Paul warned us was coming into the church. It has. Uh, in what way? Well, you can go online and listen to part four of our series, The Battle for Truth. I called it the Christian Godmen. The Word of Faith movement teaches that we are God's offspring, therefore we are gods. We have the power to create our own reality. They don't understand they've gotten that. They're leaders from Hinduism. It's coming to the church. Paul warned us it would. But he also warned us that the lie was going to come as the gospel of the Antichrist and false prophet who will use it to deceive the people of this world when soon. Well, it's happening already. It'll shift into high gear when the Antichrist finally shows up. This will be his gospel. That man can become God. You have unlimited power within. Come to me, and I will teach you how to tap into it. And anyone at that time who rejects that teaching, rejects the Antichrist, who people believe is God, will worship him as God, his followers will enthusiastically kill all these followers of Jesus Christ, tribulation saints. Because they think that by killing all these people, they're doing God, the Antichrist, a service. The time is coming, Jesus said, right? John 16, 2. When those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. Well, there's another time coming. And I believe coming soon. When the Lord Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom. A kingdom of truth. And as John the Apostle said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you that you have placed into your word things that we can uh, glean that will help us to understand the days we're living in and not fall for the lies of the enemy, especially the lie. So Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask you to keep, Lord, us um, understanding of the things you've placed in your word, Lord. Give us grace to embrace these truths, to walk in the light of your word. And we just pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to endure whatever is coming. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.